Support for Industry Focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, February 13th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, banking specialist. How's it going, John? It is going great, Gabby. Always happy to be with you. I am excited is the wrong word for this show. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about politics today, folks. And every time we talk about politics, I get heartburn. I am sitting here with a case of heartburn right now. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle we're talking about. Politics makes my acid churn in my stomach. It's no good. <laughs> um, so today we're going to talk about the Dodd-Frank Act. The full name, by the way, is the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010. It's been in the news a lot lately because President Trump signed an executive order mandating that the Department of the Treasury produce a report on whether or not existing laws, and when we say existing laws, what you should think here is Dodd-Frank, are following the seven core principles that the Trump White House has laid out for regulating financial systems. Um, There's a lot wrapped up in here, but I think that we should start with a quick history of financial regulation and kind of like, where did Dodd-Frank grow from? And I'm going to pass it off to you, Maxfield, because one, I know you you like history a lot, and two, because I think you did a really good job summarizing it earlier when we were talking about it. Yeah, I think that you know, whenever you're talking about financial regulation, it, it, it's helpful to kind of put it in perspective. And so here's kind of how I think about it and how I'd recommend our, our, our listeners think about it. After every major financial crisis, there's a piece of legislation that tries to attack the problem that caused that crisis. So if you go back to, let's say, 1907, the Panic of 1907, out of that came the Federal Reserve Act, which established the Federal Reserve. Then you had the Great Depression. Out of the Great Depression, you had the Glass-Steagall Act, which, among other things, separated investment banking operations and commercial banking operations. And it also established the FDIC, which provides deposit insurance. Then there were a series of banking crises that we've talked about in the past on this show in the 1970s and 1980s, out of which a number of really significant pieces of legislation came in order again to kind of attack the problems that that people believed caused those crises. And then in the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, it was Dodd-Frank that came out of that to attack the problems that many people believed caused that crisis. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of regulation that looks backwards in a hope to regulate forwards in the future, um, which is where Dodd-Frank came from, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about Dodd-Frank now, like what it actually means. But something to keep in mind is that Dodd-Frank is a very weighty piece of legislation. And I don't mean like in terms of importance, although it's very important. Um, Obviously, we wouldn't be talking about it. Although, I don't know, maybe you think that we're just here to waste your time. In that case, don't listen to the podcast. But but no, this is actually like just a very, very long piece of legislation. So, when we, what we're going to talk about now are the main points of Dodd-Frank. So, the things that people think about when it comes to Dodd-Frank, the, thing that people, the things that people are kind of up in arms about when they're talking about this legislation or the things that they're trying to protect. Um, so, I think that the first thing that we should start with, with is capital requirements and increased liquidity, which kind of go hand in hand um, as something that banks have been complaining about pretty much nonstop since Dodd-Frank passed. Right. And if you go back to the financial crisis, and the theory was that what caused it, or, or at least what accelerated it, 
was that you had these things that were called too big to fail banks. And these were, so these were massive organizations, Bank of America, Citigroup, Lehman Brothers, uh, Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs. The, and these banks were operating with an enormous amount of leverage. So in Lehman Brothers' case, it was something like $30 worth of assets to every $1 worth of equity. And what that means is that if those assets at a bank like that fell only 3%, basically all of the capital of that bank would be wiped out and it would be insolvent and therefore it would have to go into bankruptcy. So the thought process was that, look, we need to increase how much capital the banks hold because if we increase how much capital banks hold, they'll be able to absorb those losses that happen when we go through these economic cycles. So what they did with Dodd-Frank is they did a couple of things. Well, first of all, the really big banks they kind of carved them out and applied heightened capital requirements to them, which means they have to operate with less, with that they have to operate with less leverage. They also instituted, listeners have probably heard about these, these, these annual stress tests that tried to determine what would happen to these banks' capital on a yearly basis if the economy were to enter another financial crisis akin to the one in, in 2008. And so when they go through that crisis, they test like how, how, what the losses would look like at these banks and how that would impact their capital and whether through that crisis they would still be able to meet these minimum, minimum capital requirements. Right. And, then on the, and then on the liquidity side, and, and here's a really interesting point about the crisis that I think a lot of people miss is that in some of these cases, there wasn't just an issue of capital or wasn't even an issue of capital, but it was more an issue of liquidity because you had all these bank runs on these banks. And then while they had enough capital, the assets that they held weren't liquid enough to turn into cash quickly enough to satisfy their depository run, these, these runs by the depositors. So then what the regulators did is on top of requiring banks to hold more capital, they're also requiring them to hold a larger percentage of their assets in highly liquid forms like government securities as opposed to loans, which you can't uh, turn into cash very quickly. And I'm going to interrupt you right here. Um, so the reason that banks are upset about this is that if they have larger capital requirements, meaning that they have to keep more cash and reserve, basically, that means that they can't be using that money to make loans or do whatever it is that they're going to do with it that would actually make the money. They just have to sit on it, um, which is upsetting to them, because before the financial crisis, they, there weren't really that many limits on their capital requirements, not, not like Dodd-Frank gave. Um, and on top of that, with the increased liquidity, like I said, going hand-in-hand hand with the capital requirements, it means that they have to not only like keep all this extra stuff around, all this extra money around, it has to be in a form that's easy for them to liquidate. So, it can't be in loans, because you you know, a loan is a promise to pay back money over time, so they can't call in the loans right away. It has to be in a form that is very easy to return to consumers. And yeah, and, if, and, and, it would, that's, and that's a great point, because if you think about like, if a bank, what it earns on a loan, like let's say it gets a 7% interest rate on a loan, or even a 5% interest rate on a loan, if you're keeping it in cash, you're not making any money. So that it really attacks that core profitability of banks. Absolutely. And then on top of that, you have these stress tests that they have to do, um, which I don't think anyone disagrees that you should run what-if scenarios, but the banks are saying that it's, it's, it's uh, burdensome to them, because it takes a lot of money to run these compliance tests and it takes a lot you have to pay a lot of people and it takes a lot of time and it's time and money that they could be spending making more money and so they're upset they're instead spending it to be in compliance with these federal regulations. Yeah, that's right. And then and then also if you look at kind of the scenarios that the Federal Reserve tests these bank against, I mean these are like I mean they're almost like great depression type scenarios. Now like 
that's a good thing to, to, for banks to be always prepared for downturns. I mean, if you're a bank, you have to always be considering, you know, always have to have in the back of your head that a downturn could be coming down the road. But just the, the extremeness of these tests uh, makes these banks hold so much more capital, which then on top of that liquidity stuff just really drives down their profitability. Right. And then there's another prong to these stress tests and capital requirements, which are resolution plans, which is that the bank, the big, the biggest banks have to tell the government regulators what they plan to do for the next year. Like, who are they planning to hire? What's executive compensation like? Um, why are they planning on having a dividend? And the federal government basically can say yay or nay on a lot of these things. Yeah, and and that's what, I'm glad you brought that up. So that's actually not the resolution plan. That's part of the what's called CCAR, the Comprehensive Capital Analysis and Review oh. Process, which is the <laughs> second part. I mean, it's like there's all these things. I'm mean, so no, you're, to, like, get them you're all totally kind of, right. I have my notes flipped. <laughs> yeah, but but to your point, I'm glad you brought that up because I'd forgotten to mention that one of the things that banks, one of the powers banks lost as a result of Dodd Frank was that like any other company. Any other company, the board of directors can sit down and say, we want to raise our dividend this year, or we want to buy back more stock this year than we bought back last year. Well, because of Dodd-Frank and the stress tests in particular, banks do not have the sole discretion to do that. They actually have to get approval on an annual basis to increase their dividend or buy back more stocks. Um, so it, it, it's, I mean, it, it's a really um, restrictive um, regulatory scenario for these banks. Yeah, and obviously anyone is upset when they're told this thing that you used to be able to do, you can't do that anymore. You know, it's the same. It's the same reaction you see on in humans across the board, whether it be your three-year-old, you know, or uh, who, who's you catch finger painting on the wall. You're like, hey, that thing that you were just doing, can't do that anymore. I, I know you think it's pretty, but it's terrible. Or, um, you know, you when someone when your doctor tells you, hey. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but your cholesterol is really high, so no more cheeseburgers for you. You know, like no one wants the the immediate reaction is like, well, pff, I don't like that. <laughs> whether or not it's good for you, right? Whether or not it's good for your walls, whether or not it's good for your atherosclerosis. Um, so, do you want to talk about resolution plans real quick? Yeah, so resolution plans. These are just, you know, when Citigroup and Bank of America and Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns ran into problems because they're such big. Uh, complicated organizations. You can't just take them into bankruptcy like you would if you say you own a convenience down convenience store down the street. So what the resolution plans are are these are plans that the banks have to give to the Federal Reserve every year that basically maps out how you would bring one of these organizations into bankruptcy in the event that that was necessary. So the the thought process being that like if the roadmap is there, it would just be a lot easier to do if that was necessary. If that was necessary. Absolutely, and since banks like Citibank or like a J.P. Morgan, they're very very complicated organizations. Well, some of them are like that. It, it it means that this is again a lot of time and money being spent on compliance stuff that they don't feel like they should because no, I don't think most businesses plan on how they will fail. You know, that's not that's not something that most people spend resources on. But I want to take a, a quick minute here. We spent some time talking about perplexing financial regulation, but getting a mortgage shouldn't be as hard to understand, which is why you should consider Rocket Mortgage. I want to let listeners know that support for industry focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust and who has your best interest in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in minutes. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. 
Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting our podcast. So back to Dodd-Frank, because I know you thought I was done because of the ad read, but I'm not. There's still more. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about something that people are very upset about, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was created with Dodd-Frank. The Consumer Protection Financial Bureau is something that's very new in America. It's it's a it's a regulator, at least in banking regulation. It's a regulator that has the consumer's best interests at heart, as opposed to regulators who are like looking at the banks and telling them like, you know, we really want you to make sure you succeed. We don't want you to fail. Here are these things that we need you to do so that you don't fail. This is another regulatory agency that's saying like, hey, that's great and all, but you need to take the consumer's best. You need to keep the consumer's best interests in mind as well. Yeah, and if you think about where it kind of fits into the regulatory structure, you have the three what you call prudential regulators, and those are the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the OCC, which is the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. And kind of to your point, their primary duty is to oversee banks and to make sure that the banking system is safe and sound. The CFPB is a totally different uh, entity. It was, it, I think it opened its doors in 2011, so it's been around for a little over five years. And as opposed to being motivated by the desire to make sure that the banking system overall is safe and sound, its primary focus is on consumers. And this is obviously all goes back to, you know, uh, the, the abuses that were uncovered in the mortgage industry in the lead up to the financial crisis. Yes. But the, and I one, just want to put something out there. And you might be asking yourself right now, like, why would anyone be upset about more consumer protections? And I don't think anyone's upset about more consumer protections, except maybe banks. But um, there are problems that could be the the agency, the way the bureau, the way it's structured. It could be a little bit better, both for banks and for consumers and for the government. Do you want to get into that, Maxfield? I know I cut you off, and I think you're about to get in there, but I wanted to preface that. Yeah, I'm really glad you prefaced that because what I'm going to say is kind of it's going to sound very critical of the CFPB. CFPB. But I think the CFPB is a really important entity. And, and let me give you a, a, a tangible example why. So before the financial crisis, in fact, going in really before the CFPB came into place, the way that banks charged overdrafts on your, on your checking account, here's what they would do. If you had a bunch of charges in a single day, let's say you had five charges for five cups of coffee at Starbucks, but then you had your mortgage payment that came out of that account, and let's say those five, you bought those five cups of coffee and you had those five transactions earlier in the day and then your mortgage payment came out at that, it was the last transaction that day. And then let's say that mortgage payment then kicked your account into overdraft territory. So then you would have an overdraft fee on that transaction. What the banks would do is they would rearrange the order of those transactions and they would put that mortgage transaction first. So what, that ha- what happened there was that then as opposed to having one overdraft charge, you'd have six overdraft charges. And so that is the type of thing that the CFPB was put into place to stop because it's just it just egregiously taking advantage of Definitely. consumers. That's called uh, debit resequencing, by the way. And I th- believe the CFPB has pursued a few cases and there have been a few class action lawsuits about it, um, but it's technically still not illegal. Fun fact I learned the other day. That's exactly right. It's not technically illegal, but the CFPB has gone after it, and banks have really backed off 
back off from it. So, but, but kind of to your point, so the reason the CFPB is so controversial, well, there, there, there are kind of two overarching reasons. The first is that unlike the other prudential regulators who have to balance the impact of their policies on economic growth, the CFPB doesn't have to do that. And you know, we've talked about the role that banks play in the economy on the show a lot, many, many times, but banks provide the fuel for economic growth. So if you are cutting off the banks that fuel, you're going to impact economic growth. So it's really important that these regulatory agencies are taking into consideration both, you know, in, in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's case, both the protections for consumers, but also you, you don't want to, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face by Im impacting the, the economic growth because that will boost up unemployment, which will hurt the same consumers, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that one of the things you're, you're getting at here is that since the, the advent of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, banks have done stuff like been much more conservative about who they lend money to. And on the surface of this, you're like, great, that's what they should be doing. They should be conservative lenders. But on the flip side of that, you have, uh, you have this population of people who are already underserved by banks, um, who maybe don't have the best credit, um, but if banks were willing to work with them, maybe they would be able to get a loan, pull themselves out of poverty, whatever it is. Um, but banks don't want to lend to them anymore because they know that they will get, someone will come after them and say, look at all this un untrustworthy lending you've been doing. And that pushes those people to the margins of the banking and financial structure. So they end up going to places like check cashers or payday loan places, places that aren't potentially don't have as much interest in keeping the consumers above board or any interest in keeping them above board yeah or yeah on, uh, exactly um, what's it called <laughs> i'm having a blank but um floating you know like that keeping the consumers afloat in terms of financial things because you know the check cashers charge their fees up front so if you fail like they don't really care because they've already gotten their money but banks have an interest in theory in keeping you as a customer for a long time in theory right yeah that's that's right in theory, yeah. and, and 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 there's a lot of truth to it, but there are certainly exceptions on the margin. So let me get to that the second kind of reason that the CFPB is so controversial, and that is that unlike the other regulatory agencies, where like at the FDIC there's a board of governors, there's five governors that that weigh in on the policies. The same thing is true at the Federal Reserve, which has the the board of governors, and then at the OCC, the control, the head of the OCC, the control of the currency he reports directly to the president. So there is either a dispersion of, a, of authority at these organizations, or there is accountability directly to the political branch. The problem with CFPB is that it's a part of the Federal Reserve, which is an independent entity within the executive branch for monetary policy reasons. But even with, and then if you look even within that, so that provides one layer of insulation between the CFPB and the political branch. But there's an additional la la layer of, uh, the an additional problem is that the CFPB is run by one person, not by a board. So you don't have, so it's basically, you know, I don't want to, you know, overstate the case, but it's more like a dictatorship as opposed to like a parliamentary democracy. You know what I mean? Um, and so that, that has people concerned. And then on top of that, because the CFPB can go out and fine these banks just a ton of money. So in, in its five plus years, it's been around. It's collected something like $12 billion worth of fines, which means that it doesn't have to be accountable either to the Federal Reserve for, for financing 
or to Congress for financing because it can produce its own revenue. So there is this concern that like, look, they're not, they don't balance economic growth. They're not accountable. They can basically do whatever they want. And in fact, a court has just last year held that the, the governance structure is unconstitutional. That's, that'll probably make its way up the, up the chain of appeals courts. But it, it really is a legitimate concern uh, how this thing is, how, how it's structured. Right. So like all political things, there are shades of gray here, right? No one's saying let's get rid of, well, some people are saying, but most people aren't saying get rid of all consumer protection. But some people are saying maybe the way that the CFPB is structured right now is not in the best interest of the nation. Um, So I want to move on to the next thing, which is the Volcker rule, which I think a lot of people have heard about and maybe don't understand. the Volcker Rule prohibits proprietary proprietary trading, limits the relationship between banks and hedge funds, and I believe it also prevents uh, banks from trading certain types of assets. Um, and this proprietary trading is something, you know, it sounds like one of those buzzwords, but it, it means something very specific, which is when the bank uses the bank's money to invest instead of just facilitating investing for their, for their clients. That's right. So, banks... They can't go out and act like a hedge fund anymore, where you're like going out and buying these super risky ass- assets, mm-hmm. right? What they can do now is that they can serve as market makers, which you're, you're just facilitating. So let, let's say you're you're a Bank of America, for example, and you have these institutional investor clients, like a, an insurance company that wants to buy. Well, let's say you have an insurance company that wants to sell a whole bunch of government bonds that it owns. Well, you can't just like sell like a hundred million dollars worth of government bonds. I mean, there isn't like it's not like buying and selling a stock. You know what I mean? You actually you have to have somebody who will facilitate that transaction. So it will sell those bonds to Bank of America, and then Bank of America will find a buyer for those bonds. Uh, and so it just facilitates that transaction. That's what market making is, and that's what the Volcker Rule limits banks' uh, 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 role in the capital markets too. Right, and banks make their money from fees um, generated from that, and like maybe a commission or something. But as opposed to before, like with proprietary trading, where they were actually taking. Like consumers' money, like deposits or whatever, and then investing it in the stock market and saying, like, look at how much money we made with your money, <laughs> um, and that and that leads to some very risky practices, like you saw before the recession, that that basically just ran us head headlong into a concrete wall. Um, so Volcker rule is really interesting because a lot of people think that we should just get rid of Dodd Frank and go back to Glass Steagall, and Glass Steagall is. Um, is, was an act that you talked about earlier, which established the FDIC um, in the 1930s. Um, and it, the Glass-Steagall Act, like one of the most important components of it, was that it prohibited banks from doing both commercial slash retail businesses, so like taking deposits and making loans, and having an investment house in it. So it would have prohibited the existence of banks the way that they exist in their current form, like J.P. Morgan, which is a universal bank, it said that those two things had to be completely separate. You couldn't have it under one house, which is, right. I think, why some people want to get rid of... Some people want to go back to that. And Maxfield, do you have some insight onto why? Yeah, I mean, the, just the thought process is that it's just too risky to have trade, these, tra- these trading operations, these investment banking operations, on top of federally insured deposits. There's just... It just seems that the taxpayer shouldn't be financing these risky investments. So it makes sense in theory why you would want to stop that. But here, here's here's what you would hear from bankers if you talk to them, particularly the bankers at Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase and, and Citigroup. 
they say, look, like we have these large corporate customers who need a buffet of financial options. One of those financial options is be able to access the capital markets. And if we don't provide that service within a strict regulatory, the, the strict regulatory confines of the banking industry, somebody else will provide those. And that somebody else will be outside the strict regulatory confines of the banking industry. So let's keep it in, let's keep it safe. Let's, let, let's allow banks to provide the whole buffet of options to these large corporate customers. Yeah, which is why the Volcker rule is sometimes called glass de Gaulle light. Or, yeah, that's basically that. That's one of the things that they call it because that that is basically kind of what it does. It says you know like you can't you can't do any of this proprietary trading, but market making is okay because we do understand that you have to be able to do that. Um, so then the Durban Amendment got kind of tacked on to Dodd Frank, which is kind of called, why it's called the Durban Amendment. Um, and the Durban Amendment basically limited the amount that uh, debit card um, processors could charge uh, merchants and fees. And in theory, it was supposed to save consumers money, but it hasn't really worked out that way. So great. Yeah, I mean, basically, just to kind of put it in the formal language, every, every time that you run your debit card, the bank or the processor gets a little slice uh, of that transaction in order to facilitate that transaction. And that slice is called the interchange fee. And the Durban Amendment just put a cap on interchange fees. Yeah, and a lot of people are arguing that that's actually being passed on to consumers. Um, eh, we'll see what happens to the Durban Amendment. People aren't as upset about this one, um, mostly because I don't think a lot of people know about it or understand it. Um, so that that goes through like the big bits of Dodd Frank. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, and we and we've talked about why banks are upset. So let's talk about why regulators and legislators and like the average citizen is upset. Um, one of the charges that has been laid to against Dodd Frank's feet, which is is that the federal government now has an inability to intervene should there be another financial crisis. Yeah, and this goes back to right the whole point of Dodd Frank, and it's not so much that they have the inter- they have the inability to intervene, but it, it it narrows their their options and their powers in the event that they they do have to intervene. And again, this is just all goes back to the original purpose of Dodd Frank which was not only to prevent a financial crisis, another financial crisis like the one in 2008, but to solve the quote-unquote too-big-to-fail bank problem. And so the the thought process is that if you tell the regulators that they can't rescue too-big-to-fail banks, then the banks will do everything in their power to make sure that they don't fail. And and that's called, it's kind of, it's attacking the moral hazard problem. And it makes sense in theory, but like anything, kind of the devil's in the details. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that you, you kind of mentioned is that um, that I have heard multiple times is that like if the banks are too big to fail, like that doesn't even make sense. Like if, if banks are, are not doing the right thing, we should just let capitalism do what capitalism does, and we should just let the banks fail, and like we'll we'll see what what happens when the dust settles. Um, it's not a great idea in general. Um, I know that there's some people here who really, really hate central banking who listen to the show. Um, I've I've had emails from them, um, but in general, not a really great idea to let your entire economic system collapse. Because the problem with w- when these too big to fail banks collapse, it's in the name. They're too big to fail because when people make a run on them, when when they collapse, there's no banking infrastructure really left. Yeah, and here's. What I would recommend to any listener who's thinking about this problem, thinking about this, and who is opposed to this idea of bailing out big banks, 
I agree, Gabby agrees, everybody agrees that bailing out these bankers when they get in, get into trouble is an, a very impalpable uh, the course of action today, it's not, right? Yeah. I mean, these guys make a ton it's of money. Not ideal, they ma- no, <laughs> but right, yeah. The but the option, problem is the other right, option, the, yeah. The, the problem is that if you look back in history, the thing that we know, and this is what Milton Friedman became famous for, was that when when there is a contraction in the money supply, that is the thing that kicks you into recession. And if there is a big contraction in the money supply, that is what kicks you into a depression. And banks, these are just not ordinary companies. This is not like Best Buy, right, or Walmart. Banks play a critical role in the money supply because they both hold deposits and make loans, which creates money. So if you allow one of these really big banks to fail, and these, you know, the four big banks have I, I can't remember how much market share, but I mean, they have an enormous amount of market share uh, in, in the banking industry and in the deposit industry in the United States. If you allow one of them to fail, the contraction in the money supply would be so steep that it would almost certainly, and I'm choosing that adjective purposely, it would almost certainly cause a depression. Not a recession, but a depression. And so you have to ask yourself, do you swallow the unpalpable option of bailing out the, these dozens of bankers when they make these mistakes in order to prevent a Great Depression? Or do you punish those dozens of bankers and then punish the rest of the entire country? And then because of the way the global economy is connected, the rest of the entire world because of the mistakes that these guys made. And I personally don't think that you should do the latter I think that you just need to swallow, you just, you know, punish those bankers to the greatest extent you can, swallow that unpalpable option, but save the economy uh, uh, from, from, from such a, you know, from falling into depression. Yeah, I, it's, yes, exactly what you said. And it's hard because it's not what you want. Like, you, you want there to be a consequence for bad actions. Um, but the problem is that with, like you said earlier, like, if a Walmart fails, like, that's on Walmart, but... If the banks fail, like, and the, the the Walmart fails and the market corrects and whatever, when banks fail, the market doesn't correct fast enough. Like, there's no there's no correction if the market's gone, um, which is I think something that people miss when they're like, ah, just let them fail. Like that, and I mean, we do have those resolution plans, but that's like if there's enough like law and order in order to make sure that the banks get broken up properly, um, which is this is a whole another topic of conversation. So, um, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, Dodd-Frank is made by people. You know, there's room for improvement. People make mistakes. Um, the question is what we're going to end up with, with the Trump administration, right? Um, so, the Trump administration laid out these seven principles that they want all financial regulation to follow. Most of them on the surface seem totally fine. Um, we don't really know what's going to happen in terms, obviously, John and I are not fortune tellers. We don't know what's going to happen in terms of future regulation. Um, we don't know if Dodd-Frank is just going to be completely repealed and they're going to pass new legislation. But w- both John and I are betting that probably not. Dodd-Frank is probably not going to be re- repealed in its entirety. Maybe parts of it, but not all of it in all likelihood. Um, and I know that you have a theory about how they're going to push through change, John. 
Yeah, so you know, the, 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 the rhetoric on the campaign trail was that they're going to quote unquote dismantle Dodd-Frank or do a big number to it or and reduce regulations by 75% of the financial industry. And like that all makes good sound bites, but unfortunately those sound bites at a certain point run up against reality and that reality is that to get any type of huge overhaul of Dodd-Frank through Congress is gonna to have to go through the Senate and in order for it to go through the Senate it's gonna to need to garner 60 votes and just the way the Senate is right now, it's just not gonna get the 60 votes. So, so there's just not gonna be a dramatic legislative overhaul to Dodd-Frank. At least that just doesn't look like that's gonna be the case right now with the way the Senate is. So what they're gonna do, if you listen to Gary Cohn, who was the former number two at Goldman Sachs, who is now um, Trump's main economic advisor, top economic advisor, he's saying that they're gonna affect regulation through, change, through changing personnel at the regulatory agencies, which will be an effective way to do it uh, but it's just it's just not going to be as visible to the average citizen. It'll it'll be more visible just to your to to those inside the banking industry. Yeah, and listeners, if you follow this space closely, you might be saying, well, what about Hensarling's Financial Choice Act? Um, you know, that might go through. And the Choice Act, just for listeners who are not, you know, as well versed in the space, is basically the the answer, the new answer to Dodd Frank. Like they would take. The Dodd Frank framework, and then um, repeal what they want and put in new things. Um, some of which are good, some of which are bad, depending on who you ask. Um, and that's the legislation that we're talking about that probably won't get through the Senate, but who knows? It might. It, and let me let me just wait, wait, one really fast point on on the Hensling Financial Choice Act. Ironically, the Financial Choice Act would even further raise capital requirements on banks. Now it would re- <laughs> decrease some of those per- peripheral requirements or uh, regulations on them. But it would still it would make things even worse for the banks in terms of the core banking function. So there's there's a lot of moving pieces here. Definitely, and honestly, the Financial Choice Act could be an entire another show on its own. <laughs> so we're gonna leave it at that for now. If you guys have any questions, definitely contact us at industryfocus at flow.com or by tweeting us at uh, MF Industry Focus. Um, uh, basically, the way that I would like to wrap up the show is saying overall, the executive order doesn't actually do much besides requiring that report from the Department of Treasury. You know, it might possibly trigger the repeal of Dodd-Frank in favor of other regulation down the line, but we don't know yet. I know that you guys probably get sick of me and John saying that over and over on the show, but we just don't know. If, if we did know, we'd probably have different jobs um, <laughs> because then we could see the future. We'd be like Biff and Back to the Future. Um, <laughs> Did he have a job? <laughs> no, he was he was just like a mogul, like crazy mogul from winning all his bets. Um, it's a it's a great trilogy. In case you haven't seen it, Austin, have you seen Back to the Future? Yes, I have. Which one's your favorite? Stuff to say. Really? Okay, I'd I'm, say I'd say number three for sure for me. Yeah, they're all. I enjoyed all of them. Mm-hmm. I just really like the old West thing that was going on in number three. Um, it's so hard to choose between masterpieces. That's true. <laughs> I will say that I also like the least favorite Indiana Jones movie, the the um, the uh, what's it called? Uh, Tem- Temple of Doom is that what it's called? Yeah, the one with the the heart being ripped out of the guy's chest, still beating. Um, I was a very morbid child, apparently, but it's still one of my favorites. Anyway, um, <laughs> now that you guys know a little bit too much about me. Let me uh, let me read some disclosures here. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thank you guys very much for joining us. I hope everyone has a great week. Um, please don't send me mean emails about this. 
the show because no you know, do do send her media votes, please. <laughs> no politics politics i mean if, even if you send me an email saying like what are your political opinions i'm not going to answer it i'm going to say like i'm sorry i can't say anything because motley fool does not hold political stances which is true we can talk about what's going on in politics i'm not going to tell you what i personally think um all right well that wraps it up for us uh thanks for joining us john thank you austin um and everyone have a great week <laughs>